0: Think through this. Has there ever been something in your life that you were invited to that was like a life changing moment? Maybe it was to meet somebody famous or invited into a, a network in your business where you were, kind of changed the trajectory of where you're going. I had a friend named Dan Gardner. He was the business administrator at the church that I served before coming to Georgetown. So this was 15 or 20 years ago. Well, we had a church member at that church whose son worked for Enron before the collapse. And his job at Enron was, he was in charge of all of their sports marketing and sports development. Since they own the Astrodome, he was in charge of like bobblehead day at the Astrodome. He was in charge of all those type things. He was also responsible for getting the person each game that would throw out the first pitch, the ceremonial first pitch. So that's the backstory to what happened right before the season starts, and it's the last season in the Astrodome before they're going to close it down and open up Minute Maid Park, we get a phone call from Greg, who works for Enron. Greg says, hey, if you guys want to come to opening day of the last season in the Astrodome, just tell me how many tickets you want, and I'll get y'all tickets. And so about seven or eight of us drove down there, got to go. I'm a huge baseball fan, not necessarily an Astros fan, but it's baseball, so it's great. So we're down there, and it's opening day, and it's the last season of this historic eighth wonder of the world, the Astrodome. And as we're driving down there, Dan Gardner, a business administrator who's going, gets a phone call, and it's Greg. And Greg says, hey, Dan, Dan's a big baseball fan too, he said, hey, whoever, I don't remember who it was, we had somebody that was responsible for throwing out the ceremonial first pitch today, and they canceled on us at the last minute, would you like to do it? How crazy is that, right? Like, we're just... and it was awkward sitting in there because they're like, going out tonight's first, today's first pitch is the business administrator at, you know, people in the stands are like, what? Like, who's this guy? But it was just a last minute thing. And he was like, this will bless this family that's been long-term friends of mine. And so Dan got to go out there and throw out the first pitch. Now, just for some fun, because if I ever got an invite like that to do, that would change my life. So just for fun, I put together just a short video clip of, for you guys of what that would look like in my mind. If I had that chance to do that. Cirque du Soleil at the MGM Grand in Vegas. Watch this. Used to do that in right field every oh, once yeah. in a while. <laughs> That's insane. I've never seen that. Kai, his performance, like that individual... A few minutes ago, John Wall of the Washington Wizards, as we wondered whether a point guard can throw a baseball. He's a much better passer. That would be more what it would actually be like probably. I'd probably be so jacked up with nerves out there. It would Stanford be horrible. Out what a cool now. thing though, to be invited to do something like that. You know, when you think about an invitation, here, here's, things, here's two things that are usually true about an invitation. An invitation is usually given to people that we care about for an event that we care about, right? If you invite somebody to a birthday party, you're inviting your loved ones, people that you want to spend an important event with, your birthday, that celebration. If you invited friends over to dinner, again, sometimes we're we're inviting some people that we don't know to get to know them. But if you're inviting some people to dinner, it's usually people that you care about and that you like, that you want to share an experience with, and you're inviting them to something that you enjoy doing. You enjoy eating, you enjoy that. If you're sitting at a football game, enjoying that experience, and you invite somebody to come sit by you, it's usually people that you care about. Rarely do we do, we do something where we invite people to something, that we, people who care about, to something that we don't enjoy. Occasionally it happens. We had some of our small group ministers that grew up here that posted on Facebook that they were going to have a sod-laying party uh, one afternoon, and Hey, anybody wants to come lay sod, come do it. Well, we all know that that was tongue-in-cheek because that was not an event that they enjoyed doing, so it was, it was a joke invitation. They, really, they wanted people to come help because they didn't want to do it themselves because they were close friends with us, knowing that no one was going to go out there. We went out for that at, that morning and helped them lay sod and spent time with them, but it was based on the relationship that we love that couple. So rarely is it something that we don't enjoy. It's people that we enjoy, people we want to spend time with, important to us, to an event that's important to us as well. So it could be, when we think about an invitation, people we care about, something we enjoy, that it could be very close to the idea of evangelism as well. If you've got people that you care about, friends and family, and you have an experience that has been impactful in your life and important to you, meeting Jesus, doesn't it make sense that we would invite the people we love to experience something that we love as well? So our bottom line this week that I hope you'll really drill down on and think about and we're going to see in John chapter 1 and that I hope you'll help your kids see is this. For some of us, the very first step of evangelism is simply offering someone a come and see type invite. See, so when we talk about evangelism, talking about telling our story, some of us get real uncomfortable. Because evangelism, we, one, that's just a, that's a big word, right? I mean, we, sh- we should probably just stop saying evangelism and start talking about telling God's story and telling our story, because that's what it is. It's telling the story of God and what he's done in the world and how he loves the world and how our story connects with his and how he saved us from a life that was without him for a life that was walking with him. That's, that's what evangelism simply is. But we don't do it very often. In fact, if you talked about some of the big things, of maybe like fellowship, the things that the church is supposed to do, worship, ministry, discipleship, evangelism, the big five, if we put those in order of how well we do them, the vast majority of us, overwhelmingly, would have evangelism in fifth place. We worship, we go to worship, we love to sing, we might get into personal worship, We're doing discipleship type things. We're coming to a Sunday morning small group circle to grow closer with the Lord. We'll go serve and do ministry. But will we go talk to our neighbor about God's story and our story? All of a sudden, we start to get a little bit uncomfortable. But that's what evangelism is. But what I want us to understand this week is that the simple first step for us, it's not the last step, but the first step might simply be offering somebody a come and see invite. But we're, we are, we're afraid to do evangelism. I mean, there's a couple reasons. One, sometimes we feel awkward about it because we don't really, like, know how to do it, right? You ever felt that way? And I don't know what to say. I haven't done, like, a, a training class, or I did, but, you know, it was back when I was in college, and I don't really remember all of that. And so we, we think in our mind, if, I, if and when I ever get really prepared to share my story, and I, and I learn how to share this track, or I learn this gospel trick to, you know, get into a conversation. If I ever learn how to do that and I feel comfortable with it, then I'll go and do it. Do you know there's a lot of things in life that are really important that we jumped into not knowing how to do it? Let me give you an example. Marriage. Right? I mean, what what if we took our evangelism approach to marriage and we went, you know what? I love her and I want to spend the rest of my life with her, but I don't... I'm not quite fully prepared for marriage. I've only read like the five love languages. That's the only book I've read. And I only did like four weeks of premarital counseling. And I've seen all kinds of things. If I'm really honest with myself, I'm not prepared to share my life with another person who's never been in the same house with me. I don't know what they expect for chores. I don't know what their family situation is like. I mean, I've learned it. But if if we're quite honest, we weren't prepared for marriage, but none of us went, well, I'm gonna wait. Once I've got 20 books in, I mean, some of us, like 19 years old, like, want to get married for the rest of our lives? Yeah, great idea. I'm broke. You're broke. We got no place to live. Let's do this. <laughs> right? did mean, stop. How, how many of you had a conversation like this and went, you know what? Kids would be incredible. But we're not going to have kids because I'm not an expert on parenting yet. Once I become an expert on parenting, and I've got it all figured out, then we'll have kids. You might have thought that, and it took, what, three days home, two days home, one hour home with the infant, and you went, we don't know what we're doing, Like This is, I mean, most of us in here still look at each other and go, we don't know what we're doing, right? I mean, but we didn't, we didn't wait. We jumped in because it was important. Marriage was important and kids were important to us. Well, evangelism ought to be important to us as well. And you're not going to have it all figured out. You're going to have a conversation with somebody that's going to ask you a question that you go, I don't know. And they're going to challenge you with something that, that, that maybe even rocks your faith. But evangelism, like those other big things, we've just got to jump in, even if it's awkward for us, even if it makes us uncomfortable. That's one reason why we don't do it. Another reason why we don't do it is because of the baggage that other people have brought to evangelism. Right? I mean, what I mean by that is if you start talking to somebody about Jesus, there's a pretty good chance that they've met somebody else who was a Jesus follower that was a complete jackwagon, Right? They were an idiot. Or you go, hey, can I, can I share what Jesus is doing in my life? And their mind flashes back to the guy in the sandwich board with a bullhorn on the side of the street going, repent, Sinners. And they go, oh, that's where we're headed. And so we don't want to associate with ourselves with people like that who have been evangelists—the ones who have shared Jesus truthfully, but not lovingly. They've been a evangelism jerk, you know, in people's faces and, and and shame them instead of offering them grace. And so we've we've had those experiences. and We've seen people like that, and we go, gosh, I don't I don't I don't want Jesus to be aligned with them. And so, gosh, I don't want to talk about it like that. And so we. We don't necessarily talk about it. We're all probably guilty of that. One of the incredible things that's going to happen at camp this year, hopefully, we had to move camp back. We're waiting on a confirmation, but we've got a guy named Sean McDowell penciled in for youth camp. Sean came three or four years ago to youth camp, and one of the things that he did um, all three mornings is talked apologetics. Here's the, the proofs for Scripture and the Gospel. Well, the first, first morning at camp, he walks up and he introduces himself to his students, and he's got a, a, like a jacket on, a suit jacket. And he's talking about atheists, and he's talking about some friends of his that are atheists, and he says, what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to take this jacket off, and when I take this jacket off, I'm going to be an atheist. Now, he tells, he's already told who he is. If, if you guys grew up in the church, in our culture, you might remember Josh McDowell, who wrote Evidence that Demands a Verdict. Sean is Josh's son and has taken up the mantle grown up in a Christian home, fantastic uh, apologist, believer, obviously. And so for about an hour and a half, he took his jacket off and uh, n- some adults walked around in the audience with microphones and we let kids ask him questions and challenge him about his atheist beliefs. And he ate their lunch. Like it was, it was sad. Like some kids would ask a question. And I was like, oh no, I could see this one coming. you like, you're just teeing this up for him. And he'd give the atheist response and just shut that kid down. And another kid would challenge him, he'd shut that kid down. And another kid would challenge him, he'd shut that kid down. Now, at the end, he came back around and, and, and had a couple points. He said, now, listen, if I blew up your faith in doing that, I'm going to be around for a little bit. I'll, everything that I said was wrong. But I'm just telling you like what an atheist is. And there are actual good evidences and answers to all of your questions. So don't let that scare you. I gave you the one that was really not truthful, but this is what people will say. He also gave him some tips. He said, you'll notice at this point, I quoted an author and gave the page number of his book. He said, as soon as an atheist or anybody in a debate quotes an author and gives a page number, it puts you totally on the, oh my goodness, he's way smarter than me. He said, all you have to know is one quote and a page number. And a lot of people who debate have that tool. So he's helping kids understand that. But the most incredible thing of the day was, after about an hour and a half in, and the kids were driving it. Like we were trying to shut it down. Kids wouldn't let us shut it down. He would respond to somebody, not, not mean, and the kid would get antagonistic because he's defending his faith. And he'd start almost being a smart aleck, several of them. And as, as that happened and more and more went on, a kid would say something and the audience would be like, yeah, ooh. And the kid's totally wrong. But they're all like, yeah. And I'm like, golly, you're dumb. Um, And he would answer them, and they were like, we don't know what that means, but you're still wrong. And it didn't start that way, but ended that way. And his main point was this. He said, guys, I want you to understand, I have several atheist friends I told you about at the beginning of the message. And if you treat them like you treated me, they'll never listen to you. And he said, I told you going in that I'm a believer, that I'm on your side, I'm on your team, and look at how you treated me throughout the course of our conversation. And I mean, it was pin drop silent in that room. But that's, that's what I'm talking, it's that baggage. We've all had that guy that was the jerk that we, we've gotten caught up into the argument maybe with somebody and, 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 you know, and just bottomed out for us. And so we don't talk about evangelism because we don't wanna be that guy. And for some of us, we don't talk about it just because we're afraid. Afraid of rejection, afraid of looking stupid, afraid of being labeled. But here, here's the good news at some point, you've got to get to the point in your faith where you can share the gospel, share it clearly, have apologetic answers for people. But until then, all you need to do is say, come and see. Let's go to John chapter 1. want us to look at the passage of scripture today. Really cool passage. A lot of good stuff in here. John chapter 1, verse 43. We're going to be this week in verses 43 through um, the end of that chapter, verse 51. So, Next Sunday, this is the same passage of scripture our teenagers are going to be studying in their small group, talking about application. It's the same passage I'm going to teach to them on Wednesday night. John chapter 1, verse 43. We're going to read through it. I'm going to stop along the way to give some commentary to, to what's happening. It says, The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, we've talked about this in here before. Understand the cultural context of what's happening. A rabbi and following a rabbi was, was somewhat similar to us as our kids going off to college. You, you grew up as a child learning the Torah, memorizing it, and when it came time for you to leave the home, you, you could, if you were accepted to follow a rabbi, you had the opportunity to go follow a rabbi, which is a very prestigious thing. But not everybody got to do it. There were lots of rabbis, and they had lots of people following, but there were not enough rabbis for everybody to follow. Plus, somebody had to stay home and grow crops and fish and do those type things. So if you were kind of the religious elite as a young person and your parents had money that could fund the rabbi, you would go and have the opportunity to place yourself in front of a rabbi for the rabbi to say, yes, you can come learn from me, and we will walk and teach, and you can be one of my disciples. Now, when Jesus comes along, Jesus doesn't have that same situation where people are coming to him. Jesus comes along and he approaches some of these young people that have kind of missed the boat, who are going to be the disciples later. That's who we're going to find out who they are. They've missed the boat. They didn't get to go with Harvard rabbi or Yale rabbi or Texas rabbi or Texas A&M rabbi based on how wealthy and how, how good they were at the Torah. They, they, these are the left behinds, Philip being one of them. And Jesus, this rabbi who already has a reputation, remember when he was in the temple as a as a, as a child, almost a teenager, his understanding of scripture was, was stunning the rabbis and the Pharisees. Jesus is already a person of note. When he shows up to Philip, he says, Philip, come follow me. It's like Ivy League showed up and said, hey, you got rejected out of all the colleges, but we see something in you and we want to give you a scholarship to come with us. That's why the disciples drop everything and go. It's, it's a powerful invitation. So the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. Verse 43, he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, I want us to stop here for a second because there's two really great points I want you to see. The first one is this, found people, find people. Look, Look at verse 43, where we just read. Jesus found Philip. And in verse 45, we see Philip found Nathanael. In the Greek, it's the same word. Found people, find people. Philip had this experience with Jesus that was so transformative, this this invite into the kingdom that that Philip's life has changed because he's been found and he goes directly to find his friend Nathanael and says, Nathanael, you're not going to believe what happened. Found people, find people. If, If you're not now, I'm not out sharing the story, the good news of Jesus Christ with people. I'd have to ask us: do we really believe it's good news? I mean, is heaven and salvation, forgiveness of sin, good news? Because a lot of us treat it like it's our news. Like, we're not, we're not out knocking on the doors of our neighbors going, hey, this is what's happened to me. I went, I've had this experience, this life-transforming Jesus experience. My marriage is better because of what Jesus is doing, and I'm a better parent because of what Jesus is doing. I, 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 my, my, my work is transformed. My life is being, is being renewed day by day, and this experience that I've had with, with God is so incredible. I, I've, got, I've got you to find you so that you know about it. I've got to tell you about it found people, find people. We see it in verse 43, 45. Philip is that person. He didn't wait, like go and roll in some nine-week evangelism class. He just went and found his friend and said, man, you got to come experience this. Here's the other thing that's interesting out of this is how quickly we start to take credit for the work that God's done. Look at back, verse 43. Jesus finds Philip. Philip finds Nathaniel, And look what Philip says. We have found him. Now, what it said in verse 43, Philip didn't find him. Philip didn't find Jesus. Jesus found Philip. But so quickly into the story, Philip has already changed the narrative of the story of, hey, we've done it. We found him. I think there's a point for us to to think through here that doesn't really necessarily go with our main topic of invite, but I think it's important enough to to stop for a second and say, our Protestant work ethic, our our pull-ourselves-up-by-our-Texas-bootstraps mentality tends to make us forget that we didn't do anything for our salvation. You can't be good enough to get to heaven. Everything that God has done in your life was done of his grace and not because of you. Do you know how often we start thinking how good we are? God, I did this for you, and God, I did this for you. And we start to convince ourselves that our salvation was earned of our own merit. And I think it's interesting. I don't don't know if that was the intention of John when he wrote it, but we see in there that Philip, how quickly after being found by Jesus, starts going, you know what? Hey, we found him. We've done this. And it wasn't. I thought that was very interesting. Again, it doesn't have to do with invite, but I think a good point for us to to remember the power of grace in our life. Let's see what happens next. So in verse 45, it says, we found him of whom Moses and the law and all the prophets wrote... (coughs) Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, here's what, what you got to understand. When he says, we found the culmination of the law and the prophets, what Philip is saying is, I found the Messiah. All of the Old Testament, all of the law, and all of the stories have pointed towards a time in history where God is going to send the Christ, the Messiah. All the prophets talked about him coming, and he says, I, we've experienced it. And so, if you're, if you're watching this movie in your mind of Philip going to Nathaniel, Philip is not going with a, hey, we got this thing, pretty cool thing happening at church. You know if, if you're not doing anything, you might, you might check it out. It's, I mean, it's, it's all right. Philip has waited his entire life to see Jesus. There's an excitement level that is transformational. My, my brother-in-law got married, gosh, 18 years ago or so, I don't know how long, and I was the best man in his wedding. And I'm gonna tell y'all a story that might make a little bit of you uncomfortable, but it's just true and it illustrates the story. And it's funny, so it's worth telling. We're at the little church he's gonna get married in and it's, it's a small wedding. It's me as the, as the best man, him, and the pastor who's doing the wedding. So the girls are all off in the other room getting their bride's dresses on, things like that. And we're in this back room and, and he is so excited and nervous about this event that as we're changing our tuxedos, we literally had to change rooms three different times because his stomach was so messed up, like he was gassing us out of rooms. Like, and we're like, guys, I, I got to get my pants on before we switch rooms. And so we're moving room to room because this, the anticipation of this moment has got him all fouled up inside. So we finally clear out of the gas chamber, and we move to the, the sanctuary. And we walk in, and the music's playing. And, and he's coming, he's standing at the front of the aisle where she's going to be, and I'm standing right here next to him. His dad's right here on the front row, and the music's playing, and then the door's open, and there's his bride. And he starts, I'm not exaggerating, and at this loud. He goes, mm-hmm. and I'm standing behind him, and I'm like, what's going on? Like, and he does it again. Mm-hmm. And so I just lean in, and I'm like, take a deep breath. And he takes a deep breath, comes down. We do the wedding stuff. And so afterwards, everything's down. I'm like laughing. I'm like, what in the crap was going on? Like, I go, what were you doing? He, and he looks at me. He's dead serious. He's like, what are you talking about? And I said, when, when the door is open. And you were like, mm And he goes, I didn't do that. And his dad goes, oh, yes, you did, son. Man, it was so loud. And he's like, he had no clue. But, but you, the anticipation of his life, of waiting to get married and then meeting this girl. And here comes the wedding and the doors open and there's the bride. He's having an emotional response. There was a physical response a couple of minutes before that (laughs) to this moment. Now here, get this. Philip hasn't just waited his entire life. Generations of Philip's family have waited for this moment. Thousands of years of stories have waited for this moment, and Philip sees face to face Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And he doesn't go because he's a found person who finds people. He doesn't just go to Nathaniel and go, Hey, uh, oh, something happened today. I forgot to tell you. Pretty cool. I uh, found the Messiah. It's not how it happened. He, he understands the gravity of what it is. But, but what I, I want us to understand is, is we have an emotional disconnect because. We don't understand what the good news really is. And we come to evangelism or even to come and see, invite to somebody. We, we've, we've lost the passion of what it, should have, what it should be for us. We have the opportunity to transform people's lives so that it's never the same. And we're like, well, maybe I will. Man. Look what happens next. Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? All of the excitement. I'm going to tell you what I found, and it's met with rejection. Anything good that comes out of Nazareth, what are you talking about? All of the emotion and the elation, just (sighs) with Nathaniel's response. Anything good come out of Nazareth? Now look what Philip said. Philip could have argued. Philip already understood. We we know that Philip understood the Old Testament and the prophets. He could have said, let me tell you. Let me connect the Old Testament and the prophets to you so you know what I know. He could have had the intellectual debate with him. And there's there's a time and place for that. But Philip's response was this. Come and see. You come and see. Let me introduce you to him, and you decide for yourself. Evangelism in its simplest form. Come and see. Verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Side note, so you know, because you have some people that you need to invite as a come and see to experience Jesus in the context of the church, context of events, something like that. As you get ready to tell your story, you don't, you don't wait. we are not waiting until the nine-week discipleship, evangelism class. We're not waiting until we can all write out our stories. This week, there's somebody that God's going to call you. And he's going he's to quicken your heart, say, come and see. There may be a person that God says, you need to invite them. And you may go, well, not, not them, Lord. I need to like, go find a hell's angel biker somewhere. They're the ones that need Jesus. I don't know why you're telling me this person. This is like one of the nicest guys in the office. You realize what Jesus said about Nathaniel? He's an Israelite in whom there's found no deceit. Nathanael was one of the most moral people anyone knew. Nathaniel was a good guy. Nathanael was the one that people would have looked to more. He'd been the one that, like, I wish my kids would grow up to be like Nathaniel. And yet the invitation to Jesus was coming, and Nathaniel finds out and discovers, you're the Messiah, and even in my morality, I need you. In verse 50, the story ends this way. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Well, you'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the side of man. Isn't that what you want for the friends and the family that you love? We talked about an invite. The event that you want to bring them to, the life that is better, the life that is transformed, the life that has Jesus that walks through the valley of shadow of death with us. We've got this. We want them to have that better life, to see angels descending, to see spiritual things happen, to see the hand of God move in their life. Don't you want that for your friends and family? If so, that event and you love them, how can we do anything less than say, hey, come and be a part, come and see? They may say no. They may come and see and they may walk away. That's between them and the Holy Spirit. It's, remember, it's what, it's what the Spirit does. Jesus is the res- person who's responsible for salvation. We just do our part to say, hey, come and see. So let me give you two things to think through when it comes to just application. And here's the first thing very simple. I mean, it's not rocket science. Invite someone, invite someone to come with you. You've got parent friends that have felt needs of raising their kids. We talked about it earlier. You all laugh when we don't know what we're doing, neither do they. So come put them in your small group of a support circle and do life together with Jesus walking alongside of you. Now, let's be fair. While I'd love for you to invite them next week, this is a place you can invite them to. You may not want to do that. Like, hey, come and see And then they get here and they're like, oh, you're doing a whole series about inviting people. I was a project for you. I get that after we finish this series, we're starting a series called The Disconnect. We're going to talk about social media and what the scripture says for us, teaches us to, to walk through something in social media. Do you have some parent friends that don't know how to deal with social media in their teenagers and their families or for themselves? You got any parent friends in conversations with you have told you, I think I might be addicted to my telephone? Invite. Hey, come and see. And who knows what the Lord will do. Seven-year-old, 11-year-old girl when she was about seven, my oldest daughter, Rayleigh, walked into the rec center, and she met a young lady named Delaney. I've got a picture of Delaney. Delaney was working childcare, and my seven-year-old walked up to her. And she's the childcare host, doesn't know her, and she goes, hey, I think she asked her first, are you a Christian? Delaney said, because <laughs> in our family, our, our young oldest is the evangelist. She's like, uh, question, heaven or are you going to burn in hell forever? I need to know. <laughs> it's her evangelism strategy, <laughs> trying to work on grace and skill. She walks up to Delaney and says, are you a Christian? And Delaney goes, yeah, I I am. And and Rayleigh goes, well, where do you go to church? Delaney goes, I don't have a church home right now. I just moved back. Delaney's story was cool. Delaney was not a believer. She went to uh, Honduras, I believe. She went out of the country to do a, a study abroad program. And she stayed in the home of two Americans who were believers, and they led to the Lord. And she came back to Georgetown, a believer, and hadn't had a church home. When my daughter asked her, where do you go to church? She goes, I don't have a church home. And my daughter says, well, you should come to First Baptist with us. The next picture shows you how that story ended. Her being baptized here at First Baptist, getting involved in a small group, starting to grow at such a rate and falling in love with teenagers, she ended up coming on our team and served as one of our interns for several months and now is back going overseas and abroad because Spanish is her, uh, was her major in college to do work and sharing the gospel with people as she goes. Because a seven-year-old said, come and see. Her life's been transformed. So who is it that you can simply invite to? Here's the second thing. It's along the way, along the same lines. Is there an event that might spark somebody's interest that you can use? Maybe you're embarrassed to bring them here. You're like, I don't want to bring them here. We like you, but they won't. But there's events that happen along the way. That you can say, hey, come and be a part of this. It's a one-time type thing. I'm not going to invite you to come every Sunday. That might be too much for you, but here's a women's women's conference or a men's event for our teenagers. What I'm going to be telling them, we strategically do in this series next, not this Wednesday night coming up, the next Wednesday night is Fields of Faith. Our local area schools are going to gather at Eastview High School baseball field, and students are going to share their testimonies. Connor Lancaster uh, is going to represent First Baptist and share his story. And so we're telling our teenagers, hey, after this Wednesday, I'll be telling them, we're not going to meet up here Wednesday the 11th, unless somebody needs a ride, meet at the baseball field. Now, here's what normally happens. They do fields of faith every year. We haven't done it. Did you just find out Connor's doing this? Yeah. Didn't tell his mom and dad. Thanks. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway, congratulations. Um. <laughs> yeah, right. So what normally happens, we've done fields of faith. Our teenagers go, well, I don't really do FCA, or I, don't, or I go to Round Rock, or I go to Liberty Hill, or I go to Jarrell, or I go to Round Rock Christian Academy, and this seems like kind of a Georgetown, Fields of Faith thing. So we're, it's a free Wednesday. We're going to take the Wednesday off. That's why we haven't done Fields of Faith in years past, because we go from 150 kids down to 20 at an event. So we go, well, let's do something to disciple 150 here. But I'm going to encourage them and strongly beg them to say, hey, here's an application. Use this event. Here's an event a one off of your friends who may not come to church. Invite them to your school event where they're going to hear stories of other teenagers and what Jesus has done in their life. So I'm going to ask you, if you hear your teenagers say, oh, yeah, we're not doing anything on the 11th, yes, we are. In fact, it may be more important what we're, than what we're doing this Wednesday because it's an event that they can use as a tool to invite a friend and say, hey, come and see," and then let the Lord do what the Lord's going to do. One of the things that we're trying to do, we're working on, if you have some leads in this, you could, you could help us out. We're working on trying to get a tailgate thing out there for our students so they can come grab like sausage wraps or hot dogs and have great pumpkin hunt flyers and things like that so they can bring their friends up to it and hang out with us with some yard games before they go over into fields of faith just so that it's more of an event. Because we have to get to the point where, as disciples, we realize that a lot of things that we do at church, youth ministry, aren't just for me but they're tools for me to invite somebody that might spark an interest in what Jesus is doing. Let me close up with this, and you'll have 10 or 20 minutes to talk. Some interesting statistics. Interviewed 50,000 people. Not me, not that kind of time. There was interviews of over 50,000 people that were done with some traveling evangelism groups. And they asked them why you began attending a church. And depending on the region of the country, somewhere between 75 and 90% of people said I started coming to my church because somebody invited me. Here's some other statistics. What drives people to come to a church? 2% advertising. 6% the invite of a pastor. Another 6% an organized campaign of some sort. 86% a friend or relative invited them. Last year they did a survey, Barna did, and the numbers have dropped by about 20% in the last 10 years. But still, 43% of people you know have said in the Barna research that they would be very open to somebody inviting them to church. And the research says that 2% of us do it. 2% of people invite others to come alongside them. Now down the road, we want to become mature disciples. that can have apologetic discussions, intellectual discussions, to tell our story and weave it. <coughs> excuse me, to tell our story and weave it into God's story. But if you're not there, your evangelism step is very easy. Come and see.